Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 17. And the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And then from Jeremiah chapter 2. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declared the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's good to see so many of you this morning at the beginning of this new year. We continue this, I, I call it spring because it's like the spring semester in school and it really actually feels like spring outside, so I guess we could say spring. Uh, this winter and spring, we're going to continue the series that we began in the fall, looking at the story of the Old Testament. We've made our way all the way to the middle of the book of Exodus and what we've seen so far is really two, two things. First, that God has a mission. And that really is what we, what we you know, we're, we're learning at the beginning of the book of Genesis, that God is on mission in the world. His creation, all that he's doing in human history is because he has a mission. Not only that God has a mission, but he has a people for that mission. And in, and in these stories, it's this people, the nation of Israel, who got, he is working uh, to save them, rescue them out of Egypt. And that really is a metaphor for our salvation. If you're here and your faith is in Jesus, you believe God has saved you. He has rescued you. He's delivered you. But now we see he's taken them into the wilderness, and that really is a metaphor for our sanctification. And so just as he's saved us and rescued us from sin and death, he's also committed to this process of sanctification because we are a people who exist to serve the mission that he has in the world. God has a mission, and he has a people for that mission. And so everything we see here, we see how he's readying us as his people for the mission that he has called us to. And so there are four symbols in this passage from this Exodus chapter 17. Four symbols or four images, whatever you want to call them, that I want to look at together this morning as we kind of make our way through this passage. And, and you'll see them there in the, in the outline that I provided for you. I want to talk about the wilderness, the water, the rod, and the rock. Or just answering these questions. What is the wilderness? What is the wilderness? The water... Why does God choose the wilderness? Why does God take us into the wilderness? Why do we have to pass through it? And then thirdly, in the rod, we're going to see how you can make it through it. How can you find the strength and the energy to make, make it through the wilderness? And then lastly, 
in this image of the rock, we're going we're gonna to answer the question, how does this passage point us to Jesus, who ultimately is the one that gives us the strength and the resources that we need uh, to follow God into the wilderness? So the wilderness, the water, the rod, and the rock. Let's walk through this together first with this image of the wilderness. Now, I've got to be honest with you. We look there in verse 1, that the congregation moved from the wilderness of sin by stages. I, I've got to be completely honest and tell you, uh, that does not sound like a vacation destination to me, the wilderness of sin, right? If you've ever been uh, out west skiing, you get off the ski lift and you know that over to the right is the black diamond uh, devil's crotch or whatever it might be. And then over to the left is <laughs> is the green happy trails. And you think, I think I'll take happy trails, not this over here, right? That sounds a lot more fun to me. And yet we find that these people... Are in, are in the wilderness of sin, and they're going about as the commandment of the Lord comes to them. And it's a place I personally would avoid at all costs. But Eugene Peterson, who translated the Message Bible, put it this way. He says, everybody, at least everybody who has anything to do with God, spends time in the wilderness. And so what we see is that before the Lord took Israel into the promised land, that's where they're headed, he first led them into the wilderness for 40 years. David, before he could be crowned king of Israel... In the stories in Second Sam, First and Second Samuel, had to first spend years in the wilderness. Before Messiah, John the Baptist went out into the wilderness to call Israel to repentance, and even before Jesus, before he began his public ministry, went into the wilderness for forty days and forty nights. So there's this pattern that is undeniable in in what, you know what we see here in the scriptures that God sends people into the wilderness to prepare them for the mission, because the wilderness is the place of preparation and testing. It is a metaphor, an image that describes the dry times in our lives, the hard times, the sad times. The wilderness is boot camp for the kingdom of heaven. And if God was only interested in making us happy, then there would be no need for this sort of thing. But God has a mission, and his goal is to prepare and outfit us for that mission, and thus the wilderness. You see, the wilderness is where people in the Bible go to meet with God. It's where you learn courage and self-control and perseverance and these sorts of things. And so before Israel could go into the land, they had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And before we can go to heaven, we must wander in the wilderness too. And it's interesting that Christian theologians, and particularly hymn writers, talk about the journey that we experience through this life as a journey through the wilderness, through heartache and struggle and sadness James, in his letter to the churches, describes the Christian life as meeting with trials of every kind. And so everybody who has anything to do with God spends time in the wilderness. Now, secondly, if that's true, then why is God so committed to taking us through the wilderness? What's the spiritual lesson that we have to learn in the wilderness we can't learn anywhere else? Why Why does life, whether, you know, if you're, whether you're here and you're a Christian or you're here and you're not a Christian... Just to be upfront at the beginning, why does life with God involve, it seems like sometimes, more hard times than otherwise? And let me try to explain and answer that question with an illustration. We are in the process of buying a house, and so, of course, when you buy a house, you're, you do a home inspection and these sorts of things, and we've had the inspection done. Of course, it's turned up a couple of things, but mostly small things like shower knobs that need to be replaced and wallpaper that needs to come down and uh, and th- these these sorts of things, you know, very painted, walls need to be painted, nothing major. So it's going to 
be very little work to get the house ready to move in, and I'm grateful for that. What's fascinating is that most of us conceive of our relationship with God like that, that God, you know, we want him to come into our life and help us, you know, with a few things that need to be fixed. And it's okay for him to tinker around a bit, but nothing major. And that's really the way we expect things to go. But there's a huge problem with this. It, on the one hand, underestimates the depth and the scope of the problem of the sin in our lives. And on the other hand, it underestimates the depth and the scope of the work that God intends uh, towards us. We expect new carpet and fresh paint will be enough, and then God begins to rip out drywall and add on whole new wings, and it hurts. And the explanation is that he is doing something far deeper and more comprehensive than we ever imagined. That's his intention. And where you see it in the passage is in the, the image of the water. Now, I've watched enough man versus wild to know if you ever find yourself stuck in the wilderness, the first order of business is what? Find water. Because you can live for some time without food, or so they tell me. I've never really tried that experiment. <laughs> but you can only survive for three days or so, and in this type of wilderness, probably only a few hours. Because you see, in the wilderness, finding water is a matter of life and death. That's what makes what happens in this story so curious. Look at verse 1 again. We're told the people moved camp according to the word of the Lord. In other words, God would come to them and say, camp here, and they would set up camp. And then he would say, okay, let's go over there. And they would move the camp to wherever God told them to go. And here in Exodus 17, he tells them to go to Rephidim. And what's significant about that camping spot is, in verse 1, we're told, there's no water there. Now, God leads them to the place where there is no water. Why would he do that? What's the point? Why would God choose a place with no water? Because, you see, water is a symbol of life. So, What the Bible is teaching us here in this story is that we are all drawing water. We're drawing life from other things. Things like, for some of us, it might be a relationship that we're in, or a job, or money in the bank, whatever it might be. We look to these things, these, these created things in our life, as sources of water for joy and strength and safety. And so what God has to do is he has to take us into the wilderness, into the hard times, the dry times, the painful times, because in the wilderness there's no water and you have to get your water from him. And that's what the prophet Jeremiah is talking about. He accuses the people he's writing to, if you look down there in those verses, of turning away from God, the fountain of living water, and instead looking to other things for life, what he calls broken cisterns. What Jeremiah is trying to say couldn't be any more clear. He says God is like an inexhaustible spring bubbling up out of the ground, but instead of going to him to drink, we take created things and try to turn them into cisterns to catch water. And if you've been to the third world, you've seen, or you've seen pictures, you know that a cistern is a, is a clay pot or in some cases a plastic container that sits on the side of a house and it collects the rain as it falls and it stores it. And the problem with cisterns is that the water gets stale very quickly. And now, you know, and today it'll get very moldy and, and breed bacteria and all that kind of stuff. And, and what Jeremiah says is these cisterns, not only is the whole thing kind of silly and dysfunctional, but these cisterns don't even work. They're broken. They don't hold water. So Jeremiah says the problem with our lives is that we've abandoned the only source of water that can really satisfy and give us life, and we've given our hearts instead to created things that can't satisfy because the water is always leaking out of them. 
And that's what the Bible, that's the image, that's the metaphor the Bible uses to help us understand what it means by sin. Sin is, sin is the exchanging the glory of God, exchanging God, the fountain of living water, for the broken cisterns of created things. And we're all doing this. We're doing it in our marriages. We're doing it with our kids. We're doing it in our friendships. We're doing it with career success. We're trying to get water from these things. And the problem is there's no water. And that's the problem in our lives. That's what needs to be fixed. And that's the reason for the wilderness. And so it goes something like this. If, if a friendship or a relationship, just to use this as an example, is, has become, for whatever reason, your source of water, it's what, you're, it's what you're trying, you know, this relationship, this person is where you're going for life and joy and peace and security and, and these things. If your faith is in Jesus, then he is a good father, which means he often will lead you into a wilderness, which might mean something like the end of the relationship or conflict or dissatisfaction in the relationship, or whatever it is, he puts you in a circumstance where this source of water begins to dry up so that you can learn a spiritual lesson, that there really is no water in that thing or in that person, and turn to him instead. Here's a principle that we would be wise to pay attention to. You'll never know God is all you need until you get to the place where he's all you have. You'll never know God is all you need until you get to the place where he's all you have. And that's the reason for the wilderness. That's what the wilderness does. It strips you of all the things you're looking to for life so that you have nowhere else to look but to him. But see, we want him to stop after he's tinkered with us a bit. (laughs) But he's not content to do that. We read this past week in our community Bible reading where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And it's always perplexed me exactly what... Jesus would mean by that statement, and I happened to be reading Mere Christianity the same day, and in it, C.S. Lewis uh, kind of commented on that verse by saying this, and I found it really helpful. He said, when Jesus said, be perfect, he meant it. He meant that we must go in for the full treatment. The command is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He's going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or a goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. Isn't that great? He goes on to say the process will be long. And in parts very painful, but this is what we're in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. And Lewis illustrates this perfectly, I think, in his book in the Narnia series, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. One of the characters in the book, or if you've seen the movie, that came out quite a while ago now. uh, The boy Eustace. Eustace is the kind of character you just love to hate. He's a spoiled brat. He's selfish and greedy and whiny and always complaining. And and literally, I thought they did a great job in the movie. By the end of the movie, you want to punch him. You want to throw something at the at the screen. It really is. He's terribly obnoxious. And on one of the islands that they stop at on their journey, Eustace comes across a dying dragon in a cave full of treasure. And when he's sure that the dragon is dead, he goes into the cave and he begins to load his pockets with the treasure and he eventually falls asleep on the mound of gold. And when he wakes up, he finds that something strange has happened to him. He has turned into a dragon himself. 
And he later retells the story to Edmund, one of the other children. He tells that in a moment of panic, of waking up and realizing that he had been transformed into a dragon, he sees the lion, Aslan, coming toward him and, and asking him to follow him. And so he reluctantly goes with the lion, and they end up at this bubbling uh, spring, this bubbling well. And here's how he puts it, and it's, I'm going to quote him at length here, so just bear with me. He says, and this is, this is Eustace re- recounting this to Emmon, he says, the water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could just get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. He had a, he had a, a bracelet that he had put on when he was a boy, and it was now cutting the circulation off because he had grown and turned into a dragon. And he said, I thought it would ease the pain in my leg, but the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words or not out loud. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sorts of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, I thought. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was the most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw that my feet were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's right, I said. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and I tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off, for I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the other two, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. And then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. And I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but it was pretty nearly a desperate situation now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. And the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought, I'd done to myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt when I'd done it. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I'd been. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. And it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious and as soon as I started swimming and splashing I found that all the pain had gone from my arm and then I saw why I turned into a boy again you see in the wilderness God puts his claws into you but not to kill you he does it to save you though sometimes it may feel like he's killing you and for many of us our experience mirrors that at the beginning of that illustration that the way we go about dealing with our lives is we try, we try to do this on our own and we, and we make small steps of repentance, but we realize very quickly that in order for us to experience the kind of change and transformation that God intends for us, that he must put his claws into us. And that's what the wilderness is for. The wilderness is the place where God puts his claws into you. 
but not to kill you, to save you. And so thirdly then, we have to ask this question, don't we? How do you make it through that experience? I mean, if there's no way around, if you have to go through the wilderness, if you have to have God undress you, as C.S. Lewis makes the case in the Chronicles of Narnia book, he's got to claw the dragon's skin away. He won't have it any other way, so you have to endure the wilderness. So how do you do it? How do you thrive and survive in the wilderness? And the first thing that we learn from from the text is that in order to survive in the wilderness, having God put his claws into us is when he does... We have to stop putting him on trial. And that's what the word grumbling and quarreling mean. You see verse 2, the people quarreled. They quarreled with Moses. That word is somewhat of a technical term in the Bible that refers to a lawsuit. They're bringing a lawsuit against Moses and then ultimately against someone else. So this is a judicial scene. All of the language and the imagery sets us up. God tells Moses to gather the elders, you see verse 5, and to take his staff And the staff was the symbol of judicial power and authority. Roman authorities would carry uh, with them a rod or staff that had an axe sticking out of the end of it so that uh, they could execute judgment upon people they found breaking the law there on the spot. But this was the rod. This was the staff. This was God's rod of justice. With this rod, God had judged Egypt and the gods of Egypt. He had turned the Nile to blood. He had parted the Red Sea with this rod. This is the instrument of eternal, perfect, divine justice. And he tells Moses, take the rod and gather the elders. And the elders were the jury. The elders were responsible for hearing judicial cases in Israel and making decisions. So this is a judicial scene. There's a trial happening here. But the question for us is, who's on trial? And we see in verse 2 that the people first quarrel against Moses. They would have Moses on trial. But as the story progresses, you see it's not Moses who's on trial. What happens is is Moses leads the procession of the elders. He has the rod in his hand. So who's on trial? Not Moses. So who? Well, you can imagine when the people saw Moses coming with the rod in his hand and leading the elders, they knew what was happening. They had to have been somewhat afraid because they knew that that rod, they knew what it could do and what it represented. And so here comes Moses heading toward the congregation of the people with the staff in his hand, with the elders trailing after him. And they had to have been thinking, we're about to be put on trial. God's coming to get us. But Moses passes right through them. And so there's going to be a trial, but it's not Moses who's on trial, and it's not the people who are on trial. So who? And then we read what God says in verse 6. He says, Behold, I will stand before you on the rock. And that language, stand before, refers to an inferior in the presence of a superior. So if a king and a commoner were face to face with one another... It would always be said that the commoner stood before the king, not that the king stood before the commoner. And so we know who's on trial. God is on trial in this scene. And underneath it is this question at the very end of the passage in verse 7, which Jonathan referred to in his prayers. Is the Lord among us or not? Do you see those words down at the very end? Is the Lord here with us or not? Is God for us? Will he take care of us? Can we trust him? We're not sure, and when we grumble and when we quarrel as they did here, it is these doubts bubbling up to the surface of our lives. And if you don't answer that question once and for all in your heart, you won't survive the wilderness. Life will get hard. You'll begin to wonder in the midst of it being hard or dry or whatever it might be, you know, has God, is God really for me? Or has God abandoned me? Is he still with me? And all of your courage will melt away and you'll abort and you'll run back to Egypt like they wanted to. 
back to what's safe and predictable and so forth, or you'll just avoid these sorts of circumstances altogether. And the wilderness sea is where God puts his claws into you, but it takes courage to let him put his hands on you. In fact, you won't let him. You'll resist him at every turn. You'll avoid the wilderness at all costs unless you're absolutely convinced that he loves you and will take care of you. And here's how that can happen in your heart. Israel sinfully grumbles and complains because there is no water. They put God in the dock, even though he's rescued them from Egypt, even though he helped them cross the Red Sea, even though he provided food for them when they were hungry in the wilderness. He's done everything they needed him to do to this point. As soon as there's a problem, they put him on trial as if he's done something wrong and he should be punished for it, which is blasphemy. And out comes Moses with the rod and the elders, but he doesn't come to strike the people for their sin. Look at what the text says. These are God's words. Verse 6, take the elders and the staff. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. Do you understand what God is saying? He's saying, bring the rod of justice down. But don't bring it down on them. Bring it down on me. I will bear the penalty for their sins. And Moses strikes the rock, and out comes the water, and the people drink. And that day, when Moses hit that rock, was not the day that what is typified and represented in this story actually happened. In 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul writes about this scene in in the Old Testament. And this is what he says in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 10. He says, Our fathers all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. What does that mean? It means that what's happening here in this story points to Jesus. The rod of God's justice came down on the rock instead of the people, and that is a picture of the cross. That In the New Testament, the scriptures say that Jesus came into the world to suffer and to die in our place for our sins. The prophet Isaiah, for example, said that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and that refers to the beating or the lashing that the authorities would give with the rod. God's rod of justice came down, but not upon us. It came down upon Jesus so that we might be spared the lashing that we deserve because of our sins. My favorite illustration of this, and I've told it a bunch of times, but it's fitting to do so this morning again, is um, a friend of mine in Lakeland told a story about what happened, uh, an event that happened to his sister one time. Her name was Lucia, and uh, Lucia and her friend Olive Fuller had made plans to go to the school dance when they were, I think, maybe maybe sophomores or juniors in high school. Uh, but there was a problem. Lucia got in trouble. She broke curfew. I can't remember what the offense was, but there was something. And the way it worked in their house was is you had two options when you got in trouble. You could you could be grounded and suffer you know that, that punishment, or you could take licks. You had to choose. And, and so Lucia just really, really hated licks. And so... Uh, and her punishment came and was meted out, and she chose to be grounded, which meant that her grounding was going to happen so that she could not go to the dance that she and her friend Olive Fuller had been planning for so long to go to together. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't know, but I, I, some of you know that when you're a 15-year-old girl, I mean, to go to a dance by yourself without your friend is a really horrifying experience, I suppose. And so Olive Fuller had a great idea. She came to Mr. Mr. Strawbridge one day, and she said, I know Lucia got in trouble and I know she doesn't like to take licks, and so she's grounded. But I was wondering, what if I, t- what if I took Lucia's licks for her? 
Now, the funny part of the story is Mr. Strawberry said, well, listen, I've been wanting to beat that girl from the first time I met her. <laughs> you have to know the Strawbridge family to understand that. <laughs> and so, Olive Fuller, and you'd get arrested for this now, but back then, Olive Fuller came over and took Lucia's licks so that Lucia could go to the dance. And that's exactly what this passage says is happening. The rod of justice came down. The lashing that the people deserved because of their sin came down, but it didn't come down upon them. It came down upon God who stood there upon the rock. And it's a picture of what Jesus has done for us in offering himself up as a sacrifice for our sins upon the cross. On the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. You remember that? Do you know what that means? Like the Israelites in this story, we are thirsty. We need the living water that only comes from loving God and being loved by him. It's the only way life works, see? I mean, that's, that's, that's the tragedy of turning away from living water to broken cisterns, created things, relationships and possessions and all of these things that we look to for life and joy and peace that, that, that becomes the, the water that we're drinking, but there's no water in them. And so like these people here, we're thirsty. We need living water that only comes from loving God and being loved by him. And the only way we could get this living water was for Jesus to be consumed with the cosmic thirst. And because he was, now he can turn to us and say from John 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. See, the rock was struck and the water flowed out and the people drank. And that's a picture of the way the gospel works in our lives Christ was struck. Christ suffered the blow of God's justice for us. And when that comes, see, when, when you get spiritualized to see that reality, when it comes home to your heart, when it becomes real in the inner, interior parts of your life, it becomes like living water that can flood your soul with beauty and joy and satisfaction and peace. And you won't need your idols anymore. You won't need those broken cisterns anymore. Your heart will be so full of God's love for you. You'll be so confident in his love. You'll be so full of peace and joy that the wilderness won't be so scary anymore. You'll, be, you'll become a person who's absolutely unshakable. And when God starts to tear into your dragon's skin, you won't flinch. It'll hurt. I promise. But you won't run, run away from it. Nothing, nothing will scare you anymore. Instead, what John 7 says is that you'll become a person who's characterized by streams of living water that will be flowing out of your heart. And, John, and, and Jesus says there in John that this is the work of the Spirit. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, even in the midst of the wilderness, the work that God is trying to do in us is if we will come to him and drink, even in the most arid places of our lives, he will make us like a life-giving spring. And love and joy and peace and confidence will bubble up, you know, from the inmost parts of our lives. And they will spill over into the lives of, of the people that we love and are, in, and are in relationship with. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? That even in the midst of the wilderness, you won't need water because there will be an internal source of water. You never know. God is all you have until you get to the place. Excuse me, you'll never know that God is all you need until you get to the place where he's all you have. And that's the purpose. That's what he's doing. That's why he's taking us into the wilderness.
And so if you're here and you're in the middle of one, take heart. Come to him and drink. If you're here and you're not, then you're either headed for one or you're coming out of a wilderness time. And when you find yourself in the midst of the desert with no water in sight, come to him, for he is the source of living water. Let's pray. Can we do that? Pray with me. Father, thank you for these comforting words that you give to us this morning from this text. We uh, acknowledge and confess uh, our sin, as Jeremiah talks about it, that we are those who would turn away from a fountain of living water and would instead uh, drink the stale, muddy water that's collected in the broken cisterns. As C.S. Lewis said elsewhere, we are like children who are content making mud pies in this plain, in the stale, muddy water in the slum because we have no idea what it means to be offered a holiday at the sea. But you are... You are the fountain of living water. You are the holiday at the sea. You are the one that we've been created for. We are the flower, and you are the water that we need, and yet we turn away from you, and so we pray you forgive us, and that you heal our hearts, and that you give us, you work into our hearts faith and repentance this morning, that we might come to you to drink and find the satisfaction our hearts so desperately need. Thank you that you promise that if we come to you, that you will give us the living water. And then if we drink of it, we will never thirst again. But we will become like a spring of living water. Life and peace and joy bubbling up out of the interior parts of our life. Oh, Father, we so desperately want that. And so would you come and work by the Spirit to do just that in our hearts. That we might be a people, even in the midst of the wilderness, that bear fruit, that live on mission with you, that are obedient that are full of good works, that cause those around us to pay attention and take notice and glorify your name. This is our hope, we pray. These things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Uh, Just as the rock was struck and out of it flowed water, so Jesus on the Christ was struck by the rod of God's justice and out of him flowed blood and water. And if we drink from him, Uh, then we can become as springs of living water bubbling up from the inside of us. That is the promise. So come to him. If your faith is in him, come to him. If your faith is not in him, if you're here and you're not a Christian, come to him. He invites you. Come and drink. Uh, and, And once and for all, settle the issue in your heart. Is God among us or not? If you look to him on the cross and see all that he's already done to love you and to save you, you can't possibly doubt his heart. And so receive the promise of this benediction and feed upon it in your hearts by faith uh, so that it might silence every doubt or every worry or every fear. It is the source of strength. It is, this is water for your soul. So receive these words. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.